Merry Christmas. My name is uh, Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here. We are finishing up our series called Of Lambs and Kings, and we have been looking at the anticipation of a Savior coming, not just the first time at Christmas, but the second time when he comes again, and looking at how the Bible has woven together these concepts of our Savior being both a lamb and a conquering king, two sides to the same coin. Now, the problem that we have is we read these stories and we've looked at these all the way back and we started in the Passover and, and we looked at this concept of a lamb and, and we looked at the idea of a sacrificial lamb and, and blood that was needed for the remission of sin. And we, we tracked this story as we went to Isaiah and then, and then we got into Luke and we begin to look at the coming of the king. And today we're going to end in, in Revelation 19 and we're going to look at another meal. We, we, we've looked at a lot of meals. Um, I've had a lot of meals in this season. Uh, but the, but the problem that we have as, as we try to wrap our heads around it, it's not just a problem that you and I have, it's a problem that we see all the way back in the Old Testament and we see it again in the New Testament, is that it is very difficult for you and I to see the Savior, the conquering king, as a lamb. We, we typically want to see him as big and strong and powerful and a little bit militant uh, on our side. I mean, he, we want him for justice, but we want him for justice as long as we're on the right side of justice. Amen? Like, we typically don't want to see that, that really strong, militant savior if we're on the wrong side. I would, that's not generally how our, our thoughts work, right? You, you notice in every conflict, we're generally on the right side in our own minds? just weird how that works out like okay i'm not alone here well the problem is that that uh, when we read the Bible, what we see God say again and again and again is you don't get to conform me to your image in fact, you go all the way back to the Ten Commandments and you say, don't make any, any carven images that are supposed to represent me because you human can't even fathom me the Almighty God Therefore, uh, my name is I am, and what I look like you can't comprehend, and you would never be able to visualize or to, to illustrate what I look like and what I represent in my holiness in some sort of image or statue or picture, so don't even try. But we do, all the time, you know, we, we come up with a God that, that fits our description, the way we think and the way we feel and in our weaknesses and in our sinfulness, we try to come up with this concept of God. And, and, and generally speaking, we've all seen the pictures, right, of a white, blonde, blue-eyed Jesus? Somehow was born in the Middle East, right? And yet we're totally cool with that. You're like, yep, it's probably Jesus. Why? Because we continue to try to fit Jesus to our own narrative, and so, so all the way back in the Old Testament, they didn't want to serve God. They wanted a king because other countries had a king, and, and the king needed to kind of look like a king, right? And so, so they all wanted Saul because he was, he was taller, and he was handsome, and he was athletic, and it was like, that has to be the king. And how did that work out? Not well. And instead, they get David, who's like short of stature. In fact, he's, he's so puny that everyone laughs at him. And then when they put, try to put Saul's armor on him, it's so big, it just sort of drapes all, all over him. But God says, no, 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 this is the man after my own heart. Like, no, no one has lived on earth at this point who has, who has been as close to me as this, this little guy, David, trying to demonstrate that, that you and I will continue to picture God the wrong way over and over and over again. 
So God is, Jesus is, as our Savior, a conquering king, but he's also the Lamb of God who comes to take away our sin. And we see these parallel tracks all the way through Scripture. We're going to get to Revelation 19. Everybody's favorite book, Revelation, right? Spend tons of time reading that. Whew, man. And what we're going to get to see is the end. Now, here's the great thing about getting to tell the end of a story. How many people love a good trilogy? Yeah, a good story, right? You get the, you, when, there's, when there's an enemy that has, been, that has been built up and built up and built up and built up throughout a long story, a saga of a story, and we want a culmination, we want a good ending, we want closure, right? We want the good guys to win, and we want the bad guys to get defeated. You know, one of my favorite stories, I, got the, I read them all as a kid, and so it was, a, it was a lot of fun as an adult for this to actually be played out on, on the movies, is The Lord of the Rings. Loved reading that. In fact, Probably nothing scared me as much as a kid as the, um, the Minds of Mordor. Man, I remember reading that at night and just like I couldn't sleep and I thought that there were trolls coming, right? That the goblins were coming. Like I was just like, Ooh. But at the end, you're like, we, we, we need the ring to be destroyed, right? We need evil to be vanquished. There's something in us that knows things aren't right and we, we need things to be set right. We want to see justice. We want to see goodness prevail. And that's the end of the story. And the great thing for us is that the end of the story is actually already written. We get to read it. We, we don't have to wait and wonder if we'll win in the end. We get to read it now. Now, here's the problem again with, with not being able to understand, wrap our heads around uh, God as a lamb, the conquering king as a lamb, is that we always look at displays of strength as having to be overt, big displays of strength. And what we see continually as Jesus demonstrates his strength to us is he does it through meekness. He voluntarily, willingly comes as a lamb, as a helpless babe, to go to the cross to die. And he, he does that all of his own accord. That is, is true strength. But we humans don't see strength that way. We continue to want strength to be overt, to be big, to impose its will upon people in sort of forceful and violent ways. And, and because of that, we continually miss what Christ is doing both when he was here on earth the first time and what he will do when he comes again. And so we're going to read some of that today, but I just want you to understand that the, the, the human problem that you and I will continue to experience in our walk with Jesus, both before we ever knew Jesus, before we were saved, as we come to know Jesus, and as we walk with Jesus, is this understanding that what, what we interpret sinfully and internally and through our flesh as strength is not how God works oftentimes. We continue to try to try to turn God into our own image instead of allowing God to show us who he is and conform us into his image. And, and we do this in everything we do, by the way. I don't know if you guys have, have noticed this, and, and we could do this with opinions and movies and politics and everything else. Over the holidays, my brother-in-law made a comment around my family about how like the iPhone was better. Woo! Son, you should have known better. I got a family of little droid users, right? running around and man all those heads snapped around and looked at him and he just started getting it from every angle right they're like oh really well you can take a look at my phone you'll see what kind of features you're gonna have in two years apple user i mean they were just ripping right why because like we want to be right we want to be on the side of right and therefore things have to agree with us to be right but that's not how Jesus is going to work here. And so I'm going to read to you this idea that comes back together in Revelation 19 of a lamb and a conquering king being the same Savior. We're going to start 
in verse one. We're gonna go through 11. We're gonna look at the first part of this, and then we're gonna look at a little bit of 11 through 16. It's a precursor to a big battle, the final battle in Revelation. This is verse one. After this, I heard, this is John speaking about this prophecy that he heard. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, or praise to God. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. We'll see hallelujah four times in this chapter alone and find out that hallelujah is actually only used here in all of the New Testament. This is the only time we're gonna see the word hallelujah used is here in Revelation at the great celebration at the end and culmination of all things. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And if you're not familiar with this in scripture, the bride of the lamb is the church, you and I, those who have been saved by Jesus Christ. Verse nine, and the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I'm going to celebrate four things as we look at the second coming of Jesus uh, I wanna, I'm going to go through them right now with you, and then I'll go through them each individually just so that you have them. Four things we're going to celebrate. Number one, if we are in Christ, we will celebrate because the power of God has vanquished evil. The power of God has vanquished evil. This will be the swan song. This will be the great culmination of a wonderful saga of, a, of, a, of all of human history will culminate here as the power of God vanquishes evil once and for all. Number two, we will celebrate because the Lord God reigns. He is in charge. Number three, we will celebrate because the marriage of the lamb has come. And lastly, we will celebrate because the marriage supper begins. We'll, we will have a great feast. So I just want to uh, look at each of those things individually with you for just a moment. And then I'd like to tie together why I think this is so important for you and I as application today. The first is if we are in Christ, that is for those of us who being saved by Christ have declared him to be our Lord and the King of our lives, we will celebrate because the power of God has vanquished evil once and for all. When God vanquishes evil at the end times, there will be no more tears, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more dysfunction, no more dark world and culture that we continue to try to live in and through. Instead, it will be like it once was in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, 
when we could walk with God naked and unafraid, when there was perfect shalom and harmony in everything. That will happen once again, when God, once and for all, vanquishes evil. Secondly, we will celebrate because the Lord God reigns. Well, why is that such a big deal? Well, because he reigns now, but when God finally takes control, we will be free from human politics. Is that not worthy of celebration? I don't care what side of the political aisle you fall on. The moment that humans are finally not in charge, man, I'm going to celebrate. I cannot wait. No more elections. Amen. Yes. No more political ads. Amen. You sit down at the feast. The last thing we're ever going to talk about is politics again, because our Lord reigns and is in charge. The best illustration I've ever heard of this is you get on a plane, they close the doors, you're in your seat, and the pilot announces that he's going to let his nine-year-old son fly for a while. Listen, the moment the pilot tells you he's taking back over the plane, you're going to celebrate. And for what we, you and I know of human history, God has allowed in the brokenness of this world there to be humans to reign and rule over kingdoms and provinces and countries. And there will be a day when that will not occur anymore. And God, taking his rightful place on the throne with Jesus, our king, will reign forever. And we're going to celebrate. We will celebrate because the marriage of the lamb has come. The bride of Christ is the church. That's you and I. Those of us who are in Christ, as we assemble together, are called the church. The church, we'll see throughout the New Testament, is betrothed to the king, awaiting this marriage feast. We'll see this marriage feast mentioned over and over again in scripture, and we will find out that the Holy Spirit is our seal to this betrothal. The idea that this will occur at some point has already been committed and guaranteed for you and I. And number four, we will celebrate because the marriage supper begins. Now, I wanna spend a little bit of time talking about food today, is that okay? because I spent a lot of time this week thinking about food and participating in food. I don't know if you've noticed that uh, throughout the series of, of Lambs and Kings, we actually have really centered each of these messages over and over again, have been centered around feasts. And see, we don't, we don't feast well anymore. I, I know you disagree because you probably ate too much, but we... We actually don't feast well. We tend to run most of our life as rapidly as possible, right? And so if you have small kids that you understand what I'm talking about, you don't actually feast a lot. You spend a lot of your days like chucking chicken nuggets back in the suburban, right? Like just, just eat it and be quiet. No, we can't go to Chick-fil-A. The lines are too long. It's whatever's fastest. Right? We're going to nuke something in the microwave. We're going to chuck it in the back. I, I have a, one of my children will only eat three things. And 90% of his diet is instant mac and cheese. Uh, he's probably not going to grow very much more. I mean, like at this point, he's, it's all chemicals. It's, it's literally all preservatives. He'll be a mummy by the time he's 19. Uh, we don't feast well. We don't feast well, but, but, but here's what I want you to see. And I'm going to show you this uh, from King David as well. 
God has this way, okay? I want you to picture this because we, we oh gosh, we, we look at our conflict and we look at our lives and we look at the devastations oftentimes that we, and dysfunction that we've brought into our lives or, or, or the injustices that we see in the world. And, and we, we, we see how dark they are. We see how bad they are. And listen, especially around the holidays, we get overwhelmed at times by our situation, our circumstances. But, but I want you to understand that, that, that God allows the dysfunction and the evil and the sinfulness in these different eras in, in the Bible to build and to build and to build so that when he comes to save us or to conquer them, and it looks like a huge deal, almost an unovercomable, uh, insurmountable obstacle, and, and I don't know if you noticed, but, but Jesus deals, when, when God comes, he deals with it like it's nothing, like it's barely an inconvenience. And each time he does it, so, so go back to Egypt. We, we studied the Passover in week one. We look at the Passover, uh, what God is going to do is he's going to come and he's going to give these plagues, right, in Egypt. And each of these plagues is actually, if we were really to study this, is going to correspond with one of the false gods of Egypt. So, so, so he's, he's going to systematically disprove each of their gods by sending a different plague in the face of their God going, yeah, how'd that work out for you? And then before he conquers the Egyptians, before he wipes their army out by splitting the Red Sea, he's going, you know what we're going to do? <laughs> Let's eat. I'm going to prepare a meal for you in the face of this enemy that you haven't been able to overcome for hundreds of years and who's enslaved you. And there's so, there's so nothing to me that in the face of that danger, we're going to sit and feast. We're going to sit around a table. We're going to enjoy each other's company. We're going to enjoy this food. And that's what David actually says in Psalm 23 when he's talking about walking to the valley of the shadow of death, when he's talking about those experiences like you and I have experienced in our life, when we're at the depths of the depth, when we're at the bottom of the bottom and everything seems hopeless, God goes, not only am I going to deal with that, but I, I, you need to have so much faith that I'm going to deal with that, that you're willing to sit at this feast and eat with me to watch what I'm about to do. In Psalm 23, verse four and five, he says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. What is he telling us? You, what you think as insurmountable, what you think as unovercomable is so nothing to me because of my power, because I am a sovereign God, because I'm in all control, that before I go and conquer them, I'm going to throw a party. And we're going to sit around a table together and we're going to feast. It's so interesting that we've lost the culture of just feasting, of just enjoying one another's company. One, one of the reasons that, that our church has focused so specifically on groups as being the primary mechanism for community and discipleship in our church is so that you would begin to build long-lasting relationships with people generally centered around the Bible and the table. In Ecclesiastes, there are nine different times where the Bible says that, that, that your community and feasting around a table with good wine is holy. Now, I know I just said good wine and holy in church, but it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. That you and I could, could relearn this culture of loving one another to such an extent that we can sit enjoying each other's company with faith and dependency that we know not only will God handle today's circumstances, but that he's already written the ending of this story. And he wins. 
and he wins. And because he wins and because he's in control and because nothing's outside of his control, you can take the time to enjoy a meal with friends, worshiping God in everything that you do, worshiping God as you enjoy the fact that he even gave you the ability to taste food. It could have all tasted the same. Everything could taste like chicken. And it doesn't. And that very fact that you can taste good food was a gift from God. And you can worship God as you eat. You can worship God as you spend time with family and friends around a table. As you can build relationships with Christian brothers and sisters. As you can encourage one another. As you can edify. As you can exhort. As you can spur them up to good works. You can worship God. And in Revelation, that's what we see God do. Slows down. And before the final battle, and we're going to see a description of the start of that battle in just a minute. Before the final battle, he's like, yeah, before we got to war, in the face of my very enemies, I'm going to throw a meal. We're going to have a celebration meal. And then we're going to see the lamb as the king that he is. In verses 11 through 16, read with me. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Lamb and the king. This is not the picture we typically paint of Jesus. We get gentle Jesus. We get almost weak Jesus. We continue to teach an improper version of Jesus oftentimes in our churches where, where we focus on the fact that, that Jesus seemed almost too weak to overcome the things that were around him and he just sort of held on, this, this puny Jesus just sort of held on at the cross and because he held on, all that was good for us. But this is not who Jesus was. Jesus at any given time had the power to change the circumstances he was in, but he chose to empty himself of his godly attributes voluntarily, not because he lacked the power. And when Jesus comes again, you'll notice he's not on a donkey anymore. He's on a white horse. It was a, a, a Roman uh, symbol to, uh, that the conquering general would ride in as they conquered a land on a white horse. Jesus, when he comes again, is coming on a white horse. And by the way, that robe that's dipped in blood, that's not the enemy's blood. They haven't actually gone to battle yet. That's his blood. And you know what's so interesting is that the, the army behind him is dressed in white linen, not armor. Because they're not even there to fight. Jesus is going to do all of the fighting. They're there as his trophies. You and I are literally the trophies of Jesus. 
We may even be represented by the diadems on his head. The stars that shine above his head that represent the crown of his sovereignty and his kingliness, the army that is behind him wearing white linen instead of armor are you and I. And here's the great thing about the victory that Jesus will ultimately have at the end of times is that he will actually allow us to call the victory ours. Even though he does all the fighting, that's the gospel that Jesus will conquer evil, that Jesus will conquer everything, that Jesus will come back to rule, and that you and I get to call the victory ours even though we're not doing anything at all. We're gonna discuss this a lot more in two weeks when we do our, our Vision Sunday, but what you see God tell us in the scriptures, what Jesus tells his apostles in the New Testament is that he has already bound Satan. And you and I, our job after salvation, our job now that Jesus has already come to the cross, that he has bound Satan in this time between before he comes back again, our job is to go plunder. Our job is to be on offense. That's the great thing about being a Christian. You don't have to play any defense. It's like the NBA now. <laughs> we get to play offense all the time. Jesus would say in Matthew 12, 22 and through 30, there's this interesting story where Jesus cast out a demon and the, and, and the, the Pharisees are really, you know, they're, they're ticked off and, and Jesus keeps doing things that, that, that show that and display that he has a great deal of power and that clearly he is a, a spiritual authority, a godly authority. And so politically that doesn't sit well with them. And so they keep trying to find ways to like, like you know, something wrong with Jesus. And so he casts out a demon and they're like, he must be from Satan because he's casting out demons. And I just, I'm going to read this to you because it's such an interesting thing because I think this sets the tone for what you and I should be doing and why this celebration is so necessary and how we should be living our lives. It says in verse 22 of Matthew 12, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But then the Pharisees heard it. They said, it is only by Beelzebub, Satan, the prince of demons that this man cast out demons. Now here, Verse 25, just remember, this is Jesus still the man, says, knowing their thoughts. Man, I don't, if you're ever in a room of, of Jesus, with Jesus, I, I can't, you should just be concentrating on any Bible verse you can, saying it over and over again. <laughs> knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You and I live today in a space in which the kingdom of God has come upon us. Verse 29, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Jesus has bound Satan, brought the kingdom of heaven to earth, and has allowed you and I to plunder. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here's the point. You and I live in a time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Jesus has done all the work. 
He's bound the strong man, and he is left to you and I the great commission, which is to plunder. Now, what does plundering look like? Plundering looks like you and I using the offensive tools that he gave us, those weapons. Those weapons are not actual weapons. They're mercy. They're grace. They're meekness. They're humility. And they're ultimately love. And there's a great deal of plundering to do. This world needs a great deal of plundering, amen? amen. There are neighborhoods, your neighborhoods, your coworkers, your schools, your relatives, your children that need plundering for the kingdom. And you and I are supposed to be on offense. We're supposed to be plundering for the kingdom. The lamb, the lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world is also the king. And so you'll remember three things and then we're going to participate today in another feast, although this is communion, so we'll be a bit meager because you only get this much. <clears throat> remember these three things and then we're going to participate in communion today. Number one, remember that God reigns. God reigns. God reigns. Remember... Number two, remember that only the lamb is worthy of your worship. The world's going to tell you that there are many different things that should be worshiped. Interests of yours, things of yours, desires of yours, other people, other political parties, but there's only one thing that is worthy of your worship and that is the lamb of God. And number three, remember that supper is being served and you're invited. You and I, as the bride of Christ, as those that have been saved by Jesus, that are in Christ, have been invited to participate in this feast. And I just want you to hear again today that no matter how dark this world, no matter lo how low the situation that you're in, no matter how desperate things seem, God is in control. He reigns. He has ordained everything. He has bound Satan. He is coming again. And there will be a day when we sit at the feast and we celebrate with him the end of all things and the beginning of new. And that means we live our lives differently. If we could just wrap our heads around the idea that we were never meant to be the same. We weren't, we weren't meant to fit in. Israel again and again, uh, it, it says, you know, committed adultery against God because they would run from God because they always wanted what other countries had even though God set them apart. He consecrated them to be different. In your and my life, we have been consecrated. We have been set apart. We're intended to be different. In a dark world, you can't be a light if you're not different, amen? We're gonna walk into a new year here pretty shortly. In a few days, we're gonna walk into 2022. I don't know where the last two years went, by the way. It's a bit of a blur. Here's what I know to be true in 2022, just like it will be true in 2023 if it actually we make it to it. And that's this. God reigns. He's in control. He desires relationship with you and he desires for you to live a life that is abundant, that is overflowing, that is, has an inner peace in which you have a realization that a life by faith will look so much 
different than everything around you. So I want to invite you into that today. We're going to participate in communion. It's intended to be a symbol that is a feast that reminds us that God is dealing with our enemies. Pastor Mark's going to come up here and he's going to lead us in communion. Explain this to us. I just want to remind you this. The end of the story has already been written. He wins. He wins. He wins. Amen.